welcome to Season 8 of A Mighty Blaze Podcast, part of the awesome Writer's Bone Podcast Network. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze is your online and audio destination for the very best interviews with blockbuster authors, debut writers, and everyone in between. It's time to kick off the new season, and we're doing it with an absolute legend in the field. I could probably introduce today's guest using just his book titles, which would be recognizable to anyone who's entered a bookstore in the past few years. Magpie Murders, Moriarty, Trigger Mortis, Moonflower Murders, and of course, the many, many adrenaline-fueled Alex Ryder Mysteries. In addition to writing more than 50 successful books, Anthony Horowitz has also written some of the UK's most popular TV series, including Midsummer Murders and New Blood. Here at A Mighty Blaze, we were all glued to our screens when he sat down with our own Hank Philippi Ryan to talk about how long he takes to plan each story before he writes it, what he learned from Agatha Christie along the way, and the exact moment he decided to include a fictional version of himself as a character in his books. So settle in and enjoy the conversation as I pass the blaze torch to Hank and her very special guest, who just happens to be one of her favorite authors, Anthony Horowitz. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Tuesday. It is 3 p.m. ET, and that is a special time for Crime Time because we have such a special guest for you today. I'm your host, Hank Philippi Ryan, the USA Today bestselling author of 13, going on 14 novels of suspense. My current book is Her Perfect Life, which is casually displayed behind me, just like you always have your books on a door. And this is my new upcoming book, The House Guest, which comes out in February, which is sort of Gaslight meets Thelma and Louise. And we will talk about that um, when the time comes. But today, you all, you're going to have to stop me from gushing. You have to promise that you'll stop me from gushing. We are welcoming the marvelous Anthony Horowitz, who you know is one of my favorite authors of all time, with his brand new The Twist of a Knife, which is just out. Um, it is uh, hilarious. It is ingenious. It is incredibly entertaining. I just have to tell you, um, I couldn't wait. I'm going to switch to your comments to welcome everyone. I can't begin to tell you how I was trying to read it really, really fast so I could find out what happened. But then I was trying to read it really, really slowly because it's so gorgeously written and so funny and so incredibly meta and clever. And we are welcoming Anthony Horowitz today. If Let me just tell you what, let me just tell you one of my favorite reviews for uh, the twist of an knife. And when Anthony is sitting right there just listening to me like I'm yammering. Um, this is what the Minneapolis Star said. The thing I like most about the mysteries of Anthony Horowitz, besides their smooth writing, skillful plotting, and delightful sense of humor, is this. Horowitz gives you clues. He lays them all out there. And if you are sharp and paying attention, you can solve them. I assume, the reviewer says, I never have. And I never have either. And I bet you won't either. It is so much fun to read The Twist of a Knife and all the other Hawthorne and Horowitz mysteries. Welcome, 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 Anthony Horowitz. And congratulations on this new book. 
Hank, it's absolutely lovely to be talking to you. Thank you so much. And thank you for those kind words. It's certainly true that I've had lovely reviews from America. Uh, much better reviews than my poor play gets inside that book. Well, we'll talk about that in just a minute. Let me welcome Renee Herskowitz is here and Shannon Hansen. Shannon says, this book sounds fantastic. And it is. Susie Baldwin is here and Darlene is here and Pamela is here. Everybody is already laughing here. Sharon Carlson person saying, looking forward to hearing more about the book. Yes, and about Anthony Horowitz, too, and about his fabulous Magpie Murders, which if you have not watched it on public on PBS, you must, must do it, but not right now. Just wait till this interview is over. Um, did you always, I know you love Sherlock Holmes, um, and I know you must love Golden Age Mysteries because The Twist of a Knife is such an homage. Um, did you, when did you start reading that kind of mystery, and was there one that sort of got to you? Well, I, I was given Sherlock Holmes by my father. I was given the complete works of Conan Doyle, the Sherlock Holmes stories, you know, the, uh, all the short stories and the four novellas. And I was given those when I was about 17. By then I knew I wanted to be a writer. I knew from the age of 10 I was going to be a writer. School had taught me very um, uh, forcefully that I was no good at anything else. So, I mean, it was a writer or nothing. And I was thinking about writing and then I read Sherlock Holmes and I thought, wow, this is the world I want to inhabit, the world of mystery and, and, and murder and surprises twists and turns. As a kid, I always loved illusions and magic. I loved secret doors. My favorite book when I was growing up was the Tintin books. They're not so big in America, but in England, they've always been huge. And they're about a, a writer or a reporter. And he, he inhabits this wonderful world. It's full of, of, of strange societies and, and secret passages and mysteries. So mystery and illusion and magic and, and murder were ingrained in me before I even wrote my first words, really. And so Sherlock Holmes, I mean, after that, Agatha Christie was also a big influence on me. Uh, I traveled across the world when I was uh, 18. I hitchhiked from uh, Singapore to London and stopping at every single youth hostel, I would pick up a, uh, an Agatha Christie book and read it and then swap it at the next youth hostel for the next one. And so I read all her books between Singapore and England and came back uh, a devotee of her too. And I've always loved golden age crime. I mean, I love modern novels, uh, psychological thrillers like yours and Sherry Lapina and, and, and many other great, great writers who do work. But I also have my, my own speciality, I think, are those sort of lovely... What are, I never use the words cosy crime because I don't think cosy and crime fit in the same envelope. But that golden age, you mentioned it, that's what I've always loved. Do you know the books of Edward Eager? Have you ever read like... No, I have come across Edward Eager. Tell me who he is. Um, he, I don't know. I don't even know if he's a Brit or an American, but he wrote books in the 50s and 60s called The Time Garden and Magic or Not and Knight's Castle. Knight's Castle is four intrepid kids, you know, the old four intrepid kids thing. Go back to... Um, Ivanhoe, and they be, they realize they're in Ivanhoe, but they already know the story of Ivanhoe, what the smart one does. And so she tells them what's going to happen. And magic or not, no, half magic is when they find a talisman and they have to, they realize that they can have their wishes granted, but they have to ask for twice as much as they want. Oh, that's interesting. That's a fun and idea. So it's all math. And when they say, I wish my cat could talk, and she, they say, oh, I wish Heather could talk. And then Heather the cat whispers. Oh, very good. Oh, These are young people, is that right? Yes, they're young adults. It may be, but they never came across the Atlantic. The funny thing about children's books and young fiction is that some writers travel and, and, and do, uh, and some don't. Uh, and, and so, for example, you know, the Nancy Drew mysteries, which of course were vast in America, never quite knocked Enid Blyton off her perch here in Britain, where we were reading the famous Five, which was similar, but the English and version. we really never got Enid Blyton. I mean, I've Well, that's what I mean. It's a sort of, maybe that's why I haven't come across these books. They sound fabulous. 
they're still good. Have any of you read, when I look over here, I'm looking at the comments. Have any of you read the Edgar, Edward Eager books? Please, please look for them. I, I have a stash of them on my shelves behind me um, to give to any kid that comes over. I just force the books on them. Um, oh, it's nothing better than giving a kid a book. I love doing that. I love, uh, actually, I love receiving books too. There's no, you know, with the holidays coming up right now, nothing is easier to wrap and nothing gives more pleasure than a book. And it's so easy to wrap this one. You That's all. the thing. You can just pick that up <laughs> and put some ribbons on it and everyone will absolutely love it. Let me quickly welcome you all as the people are coming in here. Sherry Steuben and Pamela is here and Renee is here. Oh, that's so nice. That's a, the she, Pamela says, that sounds good. It does indeed. The twist of a knife is absolutely marvelous and it is a good gift. Um, let me tell you a little bit if you're just arriving about A Mighty Blaze. A Mighty Blaze was started two-ish years ago by the powerhouse team of Jenna Blum and Caroline Levitt to keep us all discovering new authors or talking to our favorite authors, discovering new books and finding new books. And we are going strong, um, even as the pandemic cross fingers seems to wane, who knows, but we will be here and we will be bringing you interviews with wonderful new authors like Anthony Horowitz and his fabulous new The Twist of a Knife. Let me tell you a little bit about Anthony Horowitz. Um, if I read this bio, this is an official bio. It probably is going to change during the time that I'm reading it because Anthony will do something else. So just this is just a moment in time. One of the world's most prolific and successful writers, Anthony Horowitz, may have committed more fictional murders than any other living author working across so many media from books to TV, films, plays and journalism. Several of his previous novels were instant New York Times bestsellers, his best-selling Alex Ryder series for young adults, speaking about gift books, um, has sold more than 19 million copies worldwide. That was just last year. As a screenwriter, he has created both Midsummer Murders and the BAFTA-winning Foils War, Foils War, and other TV work, including Poirot and the widely acclaimed mysteries miniseries Collision and Injustice. And if you have not seen those, they are fabulous. I came upon those randomly, not knowing they were you, Anthony, and I was just blown away by them. Anyway, going on. His award-winning novel, Magpie Murders, has been adopted into a six-part miniseries written by Horowitz himself and starring Leslie Manville. Amazing. It is on PBS Masterpiece, and that's why they call it Masterpiece. It is a work of complete genius in every way. And his new, I said that, and his newest novel is the fourth of the Hawthorne and Horowitz Mysteries, The Twist of a Knife. Congratulations. And now I will stop talking. Tell us, <laughs> tell us all about this book. Okay, where do I start? Let me start with the concept of it, which is that I am, you mentioned it, it's a Horowitz and Hawthorne book, is what you just said. And I'm actually inside the book, not as a main character, but as a sidekick. I am a sort of the, Hawthorne is a detective, a disgraced policeman who has been thrown out of the police force for reasons that are still unclear, even after four books. And he is, he's become a private investigator and has decided to raise his earnings by hiring a writer to write books about him. And the idea is they'll split the profits 50-50. And it goes a bit metafiction because the writer that he hires to, to write about him is me. So you get me working on Foyle's War, having my life with my wife, with my children in London, but suddenly becoming the sort of the, the sidekick of this rather difficult detective. And we have solved so far three sets of murders together. It began with the word is murder, the sentence is death, then a line to kill. This, as you say, is a fourth. It stands alone instead. You don't need to have read the earlier ones to read the new one. And in this one, what the story is, is it involves a play being put on in the West End of London by a play written by me. Called a real play written by real you. Google it now, you will find that, that 
I did indeed write a play called Mind Game, and it was put on in London at the same theater that is in the book called the Vaudeville Theater. But in this version of events, um, there is a murder. And the person who is murdered is a particularly horrible critic. I mentioned this in, our, in your introduction, Hank. A horrible critic writes a really virulent review of my play, saying what a terrible writer I am. The next day she is found murdered with a knife that belongs to me, which has my fingerprints all over it. A hair from my head is found on her body, and I am promptly arrested for her murder. And only Hawthorne, who is not my best friend and is not necessarily going to help me, only he can get me off the hook. And that is the setup of that book. I'm laughing so hard because I'm just drowning in pronouns because the idea that you say I and me and it's not you, it's the fictional Horowitz who is sort of like the real Horowitz-ish kind of character. And you, could, you all can tell from Anthony's description how hilarious that is and what a concept it is and what a mind game mind game is and what a mind game this book is. So incredibly entertaining. It was kind of brash of you to decide to put yourself as a character in your own book. Do you remember when you thought, hmm, Mike, maybe I could just do that? Do you remember the moment? I do remember it very vividly. My publisher took me out for lunch and said they wanted a long-running detective series for me. Not one book, but maybe, you know, eight, nine, ten of them. And so I had to start thinking about what would make those books enticing for me. And as you know, Hank, there are so many detective stories out there, so many detectives, so many, you know, murders and so many crimes and so many clues. I wanted to do something that was going to turn the world upside down. And I had this idea that, that even at that lunch, the idea came while my editor was, my publisher was talking to me about doing it. I had this idea of just turning the whole whodunit on its head. You said it was very brash to put me in the book. It's a very good choice of word. Because when I told my publisher that was my idea, not at the lunch, I waited a week or two before I mentioned it. She said, look, you know, is this, isn't this going to be a bit sort of egotistical? Isn't it going to be a bit like sort of an ego trip, you know, boasting about, you know, what a great writer you are or how many books you sold? And I said, no, no, it's the opposite of that. Because... Instead of being the cleverest person in this book, the author who knows the murder long before it's happened and knows the killer and knows all the clues and everything, I'm going to be the most stupid person in the book. I'm just a narrator. I'm a sidekick. I'm Watson. Or better still, I'm Hastings to Poirot. You know, Hastings never gets anything right. And in these books, nor do I. I'm absolutely useless. And so, so far from being brash, it just what it does is, it means that when I'm writing the book, instead of knowing everything, I know nothing. And it just turns the whodunit upside down. So you get the pleasure of the chase, the clues, the red herrings, the suspects, the, you know, the, 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 the sleight of hand. But you get it in a sort of an upside down sort of way. And it's super upside down because in the first three books, at least, um, you, Hoth, I keep saying you. Do I, do I say you? You can say me. Oh, it's it, is me. it is me. It's my, it's, it looks like me. It talks like me. It lives in my house. It must be me. Yes, but let me just fast forward then because it's, because the but the Horowitz in the book you, the the goofy, vulnerable, sometimes pitiful, sad sacky, sidekicky you, um, and the brilliant, brilliant Daniel Hawthorne, the enigmatic guy with the secret who's a Sherlock Holmesian kind of withholding but brilliant. They're both you though, because you're writing both of them. So you're really in charge of the book, even though you're sort of in the book, you're not in charge of the book. Well, that's, I mean, when I'm writing the book, of course, it has to be very, you know, it takes me three or four months of thinking before I write one word of any of these books, you know, actually structuring them and working out the plot and, 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 and you know, the twists and, and, and how to how to write it even it takes me a very, very long time before I actually put pen to paper. 
but but you know it's it's so you it know is, the whole plot you know the whole thing in the book is me you know anybody who knows me would know but that is sort of how i am i'm not a particularly clever person i like to think i'm a good writer but i'm not much good at anything else you know even at school they said i was no good at anything so so that hasn't changed. And my wife is in the books and my children are in the books. And they're sort of pretty much as, as they are. But, but Hawthorne is nothing like me at all. I mean, he is, a, he is completely out of control. I mean, his, he has views that are, I, I find abhorrent. I mean, you know, he's, he has a slight sort of, you know, he has political issues which are, with which I don't agree. He could be quite um, unpleasant to people. He calls me Tony, which incidentally I hate. Nobody ever calls me Tony, but, but he does all the time. And I, I can't stop him. So, you know, I'm not in control of, I don't like writers who say they're not in control of their characters. You know, as well as I do, Hank, we are in rigid control of what are our characters. But nonetheless, I think of, of, of Hawthorne as a separate entity. But when, so you were saying earlier though, you spend the three to four months thinking before you write anything. So do you, so do you know the whole book? Do you know what happens? I well, do. Yeah, well, you see, the, the, the writer me does know. The character me doesn't. Right, right, right. No, I mean, I that's the difference between us. And and but you know to make it work. And for, you know in in for example the um, second of these books, the sentence is death. I came up with the idea that there would be two completely different solutions to the same murder, and they would both work. So I would have one murder with a set of six or seven clues, and. Anthony in the book would interpret the clues one way and get the wrong person, whereas Hawthorne would interpret them the correct way and get the right person. And to just work that out itself. So therefore, every single clue, I don't know whether it was a torn button on the floor, it would mean one thing to the Anthony in the book and one thing to the Hawthorne in the book. But it's, it's cool. Sorry. It's cool because you can think of that as like a real, as a real jigsaw puzzle, that if you put the puzzle pieces together, it fits. But then if you turn the puzzle over, the picture is different. And that's that sort of is the idea. That's exactly right. When I'm writing the books, especially, you know, the, the longer books I do, because some of my murder mysteries are very long, I sometimes feel like a telephone engineer in the old days where you'd have a, two cables with like 25 different colored wires coming out of them. And you can get one, you know, in, in, like the guy in England or the guy in America, and they've got to meet each other somewhere to connect this, this thing together. And every single cable has got to find its... It's a little like that with a book, with a murder mystery. The, the, the beginning and the end have got to somehow come together in a way that everything fits together. And you also were very kind in your introduction to talk about the clues that, that in my books, you read the review that said that the clues are always in plain sight. Now, that's something I learned from Agatha Christie, which is that no, the mur a murder mystery that does not present all the clues in plain sight for the reader to, to see and to guess, to me, it's failing. It's not, it's, it, or it may not be failing, but it's not satisfying. Well, it's not either. fair because those are the books that, you know, that as readers that we get to the end and then somebody's cousin from Australia comes in that we that came in on page 342 that we have never known before. And it's not fair. And, you know, we your readers are really smart. I mean, your books are complex, but they're not complicated. They're complex and very fun and entertaining to read, but you do have to not get your wires crossed um, along the way. So I, I do think I know I do think that reading your books is so much fun. And the idea that they're entertaining, how much does that go? I mean, you have a puzzle, you have a puzzle mystery that's fair with all the clues. And if you get it the right, if you get it right, you get it right. And and but you're always intrigued. But what about how just having fun with it? What about somebody who just doesn't even try? They're just going along for the ride. Well, you just used the F word, which is my favorite word, fun. I, and the books have to be fun for me. And, and, the, and the pleasure of writing them 
is, and I think sometimes, not in every murder mystery, but sometimes I think murder mystery writers, particularly, no, I won't say particularly in anywhere, but, but just generally, there is a danger sometimes that people are so obsessed with the sort of the structure and the clues and the cleverness and the, and you know, the sort of the complexity of it, but they lose sight of what a book should be, which is to me an entertainment. And my books are meant to be to make you smile. You know, we've just come through this two years of, of, of awful COVID. You mentioned it again in your opening. And it's interesting, but in that time of when everybody was locked down, book sales soared. That was one of the things. There was a spike, 5% rise in, um, in book sales, as you'd expect. But the biggest rise was in crime fiction. And I think that was partly to do with their escapism, but also because so many crime fiction books can be and should be, in my mind, fun. Was it, is it fun for you to write, though? I mean, you've got the juggle of writing this fair play, golden age-ish kind of mystery and the meta element of putting yourself um, in the book and also that you have to write the brilliant um, Daniel Hawthorne. So you have to be you have to have the Sherlock Holmes element of the of the story as well. All of those you're juggling at the same time. Is, is it? I mean, I sort of look at you as a mad scientist at your computer, writing this marvel, making this marvelous concoction. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Hey, folks, this is Daniel Paisner, host of As Told To, the ghostwriting podcast, available here on the Writer's Bone Podcast Network and wherever podcasts are sold. We feature long-form conversations with ghostwriters and collaborators of all sizes and stripes, taking what we hope is a meaningful look at the making and shaping of some of our best-selling memoirs and autobiographies, with a focus on craft and process and whatnot. Actually, often a whole lot of whatnot. In the beginning, we set out to talk to some of publishing's top ghostwriters, but we've expanded the conceit of the show to include songwriters, speechwriters, joke writers, dramatists, television writers, and pretty much anyone who writes in service of someone else's voice or vision. Everybody's got a story to tell, and sometimes it just works out that they need a little bit of help. As told to, the ghostwriting podcast. Join the conversation every other Tuesday here on the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. I sometimes feel like a mad scientist, or the books are driving me mad when I'm sitting not so much on my computer with my notepad and pen and doing that structuring, that exercise in structure. And it's sort of funny how, you know, that standing on the hill, looking down into the valley and sort of seeing all the different parts and trying to bring them together, it's, it's sort of, that's the bit that exhausts me most. Once I start writing it, then the fun begins. And, and it, then you get the banter and you get the sort of the, just the sheer joy of it. And, and you know, what, what, is, what is, I've been writing now for four decades. I mean, it's been over 40 years since my first book was published. And yet I still have that same buzz of excitement, the smile, where I want to wake my wife up at night and say, Jill, Jill, listen, I'm just, this is my new joke. Oh, Anthony, she said, just go back to sleep. <laughs> but, um, but that's, that's how I am. I mean, and, and you know, there's, there are some lovely jokes in the books as well, which just make, you know, that make me smile. Um, I, I loved it. I mean, I, it, it was so much fun to read. So, so entertaining. But, and I do think also that you get to, as a writer, as a playwright and as a writer, um, when you get when you are the when you are the butt of a scathing review, when one just stabs you in the heart, 
um, it is it it is does make you feel a little murderous. I have to say. Well, so, you know, as I said, Mind Game is based, was a real play that I wrote, and it to be honest with you, it divided the critics 50-50. Half of them hated it, and half of them loathed it. So, I mean, whichever way I looked, I got these terrible reviews coming in. Uh, and when I was writing, thinking up this book, I was very careful not to make this a work of revenge, not to sort of say critics are vile people and this is horrible. I think Harriet Throsby, the, the writer who gives me the bad review, is a horrible person. Um, but that, in a way, I, I wanted to make her larger than life, to make her like no critic who's ever existed, because it was a very strange thing. When the book was announced in, in my country, in Britain, um, newspapers ran big articles about it, saying this is a writer getting his revenge on, on critics. And three critics who hadn't even read the book they hadn't read the book, but three theatre critics said, I understand this book is based on me, and I think Anthony should really get a thicker skin and not be so snarky about it. But it was the idea was never to say anything bad about critics. Critics are writers too, in the in their own way, they are artists. They're entitled to their opinions, you know, and um and and you know, if you're gonna live with the great reviews, you read out one at the beginning of this of this discussion, and you know, and, and it was lovely to hear it. If you're gonna if you're going to smile at the good ones, you've got to learn to have a thick skin about the bad ones. I'm not saying they don't hurt, they do. But you know, the old the old um truism is that writers never remember the good reviews, but they remember the bad reviews for their whole life. So, you know, it does sit with you and it does stab you to the heart. And um I won't pretend it doesn't hurt, but this book is not about aren't critics horrible people. And the death of Harriet Throsby is not a sort of a knife aimed at the whole critical community. It's, it's, it's an entertainment. And, I, and that's very clear in the book. And I think even Hawthorne says it a couple of times. Nobody would do that. That can't be that can't be the motive. That's not giving anything away because you just get you just said that. Um, and also that she is a particularly vicious person. Um, and you she has a history of this viciousness um so and I, and I thought it was but i thought it was fun i thought it was fun you know horowitz in the book is very very hurt by <laughs> by the bad reviews and his and his and his troop of um actors who are play roles in mind game and also roles in this book talk a little bit about your history of being involved with the theater and why that was such was a good thing for you to do i was going to say that you know the funny thing about me is that i i began my life wanting to be a theater writer that was where i really wanted to be even more than a novelist and somehow the fit just never worked i never got hired nobody was interested since then i have written two plays uh, which have both been uh, performed on the west end stage there was a play about the invasion of Iraq called Dinner with Saddam, and there was the other one, Mind Game. And um, they were not well received. They just, they just did not work. And it sort of interests me in a way, uh, the, the sort of, you know, why, why I, 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 with my novels I can be so successful, with my plays less so, but it doesn't stop me because, you know, writing is an adventure. Writing is all about challenging yourself, about going out of your comfort zone. I could be writing my 35th Alex Ryder novel now because that series, you know, has a built-in audience. Everybody looks forward to the next book. But to me, that would be a sort of a failure because, you know, there are so many different things that I want to write and I've managed to do most of them, you know, adult books, kids' books, horror, um, spy stories, science fiction, all of them. I've done a bit of everything. And plays are the biggest challenge because of this. If you write a book and you get a bad review, you're impervious. You can't be hurt because a critic is writing about something that you that you wrote a year ago. And and when, by the time it cut, nobody really, I think, is that influenced anyway by reviews. I mean, yes, reviews help sell books, but I don't think somebody says, oh my goodness, um, 
Variety has given Anthony Horowitz's new book a thumbs down. I'm not going to buy it. They're people just, you know, they, they like the authors and they buy them. Theatre is different. Mm-hmm. With a theatre, you give me a bad review. You are reviewing me now. It's not a work I did a year ago. It is the work I did today. And it hurts. It's so close. And it is still true, even now, I think, that bad reviews can sh- close down plays. Uh, and, and, and so the power of the critic is that much greater. But, and also, it's not just the playwright, but it's all of the actors who are involved. Then in you the have production. to go on. Some you know, of them might be praised. Some I, of remember, might be I remember vividly going into the theatre the day after a bad reviews have sort of finally have come out. And, and the actors are contracted to go on for as long as the play is going to run. And you, the writer, or I, the writer, have a sense of culpability. It's my fault. This is my play. You kind actors have agreed to do it. And the critic may have said, this is a wonderful team of actors. Why have they wasted their time doing this terrible play? Which is more or less what Harriet Throsby says about, about Mind Game. And you do feel that sort of sense of, you know, injustice and, and, and hurt. And, and at the end of the day, that's what the book is about as much as anything else. It's not about horrible critics. It's about how you cope, how a writer copes with with that sort of level of, of negativity. But, but, you know, if you're going to be in our business, Hank, and, and write professionally, you've got to take the slingbacks along with the flowers or the bouquets and, what's it, bouquets and slingbacks, whatever the phrase brick is. Bats and sl- brick bats. Well, brick bats I, and, uh, brick bats no, and I, agree with, I agree with that, of course. Uh, but I, going back to what you were saying about, although I say, oh, I agree with that, of course. And then if I get a bad review, I'm, I'm devastated for weeks. I remember Lee Child. Lee Child's favorite bad review was he got a one star for, you know, Lee Child, all of you. Um, I, wow, so many more people are here. Sharon and Renee and Darlene is here. And Brenda, who says PBS did a nice job with Magpie Murders. PBS did a nice job. Anthony Horowitz did a nice job, too. And Leslie Manfield did thank a nice you, job. Thank you, I'm glad you liked it. Protection. And, and thank well, you, Janine, for really saying you're a message, too. We'll talk about that, okay, Brenda, because I th- I know you want to hear about it um, as well. Um, and now I've completely lost my train of thought. What were we talking about? Injustice. So yes. injustice in this book um, is what makes it, takes it to be bigger. Because I think there is such a gorgeous through line throughout all of righting a wrong and making the world be right. I heard you say at some point, and I'm looking at my notes, there are, the motivation for killing someone was is fear, envy, anger, and desire. Is that you? Did you say something? I know this is how I was, I, well, the point I was making was that there are actually very few reasons to kill somebody. It's one of the interesting things about writing murder mystery, and there are so many of us writing them, and there are so many different murder mysteries out there. But actually, we're all playing with the same basic elements. You know, you kill somebody because you're afraid of them, because you hate them, because you are, because you envy them, mm-hmm. uh, or, or because you want you know, something. there's something about you that you need to hide. I mean, there, there aren't many reasons to kill somebody. And for me, murder mystery writing always begins with a motive of, you know, I have this formula, A plus B equals C. A is one person, B is another person, C is the reason why A wants to murder B. And if you can work out that little tiny circle and do it in an original way, and in a way that isn't too sort of, you know, far-fetched or silly or whatever, then, and, and, but mainly as original, then I think you can then expand out. The rest of it becomes quite easy in a way, comparatively. Is that um, how you start with that A plus B? I always start with that. I start with that. And, um, you know, I, when I was reading Agatha Christie, I think one, one, one of the things she's absolutely brilliant at is coming up with amazing motives for murder. Mm-hmm. My favorite, and I've got to be careful not to give anything away, anybody listening, if you haven't read The Mirror Crap from Side to Side, which is one of my favorite Agatha Christie's, the motive for the murder is so humane, 
so understandable, so so ordinary in a way, and yet so clever that you realize why she has that, you know, that label of the queen of crime, because she sure is. I mean, it's an extraordinarily clever observation of humanity. And again, this is something I've said before, which is that I think that in a successful whodunit, there is always a modicum of sympathy somewhere for the, for the murderer. And this is certainly true, incidentally, of a twist of a knife, where when the murderer is revealed, there is a certain sadness hanging yes. in the air, a sense of sort of, you know, what a shame. Um, but, uh, but, but I think in all murder mysteries, often, often in Agatha Christie and Poirot, and even in Sherlock Holmes, and in many, many writers that I, whose work I enjoy, you know, if you are pushed to kill somebody, it's because your emotions have been aroused to a very large extent by something. Now, it's not, you know, a murder mystery doesn't work if somebody is just pure evil, a serial killer, and decides I'm going to kill A, B, C, and D just for fun. You know, there's got to be a, a reason, and that reason has got to be something to do with humanity and the way we all rub along on this planet, but just occasionally something breaks, something in the envelope tears, and, and we can no longer hold back these emotions to come up. And in golden age crime, you are in danger of being hanged. In America, of course, you still are. Uh, you know, you still have capital punishment. We don't. But, uh, but that sense that you will risk your own life to take another life means that you have really been pushed as far as you can go. And that See, is the mirror, the mirror cracked. Is that the Lady of Shalott in that? In that? So, well, Agatha Christie often used uh, in her titles, um, you know, our classical poetry and plays. Um, it's one of the things I love her for. Uh, how many of her plays actually, her books actually, after the funeral is a quote from Shakespeare, for example. You know, there are, and there are many, many others. I, I, I think your title is good, though. I think your Odyssey of Through the World by Agatha Christie books seems like a wonderful, a wonderful film. Anyway, going to film, and Brenda has a good question, and I want to talk about it, too, is Magpie Murders. If we can just, we, I think we can sneak it into Crime Time, which is about books, because it's an adaptation of a there book we can talk about miniseries. So Magpie Murders, you all, on, on PBS in the U.S., and on, coming up again in the UK, Brenda is saying something that I think is brilliant. She said, I read and enjoyed the book first. I wasn't sure how I would like the series knowing how it turns out, but it's interesting how they manage the book within a book. And it's kind of real life on one end and fiction on the other end that kind of come together. And I have to tell you, it should not have worked. It should not have worked, but it did. It looks gorgeous. You, you are right. And I want to apologize to those, everyone who thinks they might be being a bit rude, sipping at a glass of it, but I had a slightly dry throat this morning and I've, I'm just, just sipping apple juice to keep myself um, from drying up as I speak. But um, you're right. It was an extremely difficult adaptation and it took me about two years to actually write the first script. It just kept on going wrong and being turned down and thrown back at me. And it was my wonderful wife, Jill Green, who is also my producer, who cracked it. And I have to say she cracked it very early on. But because she's my wife, I was foolish enough not to listen to her and say, I know best, I'm going to do it my way. But when I finally listened to her and did it her way, it worked. And what she said was this, and she was so right. This is how Magpie Murders adapted itself for the screen. She said, you cannot, in the book, there are 300 pages of the 1955 murder mystery before you really meet Susan Ryland, the modern editor, who is going to investigate the missing chapter. The book is missing a chapter and the author has been murdered. So that's, that's what the setup of the book is. And she said to me, Jill, she said, look, 
if you've got Leslie Manville as your star, because she came on very early, you can't hold her back for three episodes and then introduce her halfway through the series because that's crazy. She's your star. And anyway, she won't do it. So she's got to appear at the very beginning. And that then broke it for me because it meant that I had to run the 1955 story, the, the, the world of Atticus Punt and sort of the Agatha Christie world of Saxby on Avon and, and a landowner who is, you know, decapitated in chapter two or, you know, in, in whatever and all that. With the modern world of an editor and, and her publisher and her, her career choices and her social life, her relationship with her family and all these things had to run concurrently. And as soon as I had that in my head, that we were going to do 1955 and the modern age together at the same time, and that characters could come down the stairs as a 1955 character and emerge out of the door as a 21st century character, and all these switcher, although it was a bit of a sort of a, it did my head in to a certain extent, I saw that this was the way to go. And suddenly I also realized that Atticus Punt, the old detective, and Susan Ryland, the modern editor, would have to meet and have conversations with each other. And they'd have a relationship. And that also was a fantastic thing to do. We had a wonderful actor called Tim McMullen playing Atticus Punt. Uh, I'd worked with him before on Foil's War, and um, he absolutely nailed it right. And it just all worked. I should actually, one, but I'll stop talking in a minute, Hank. I'm sorry, babbling. But the other big thing, Peter Catania, one of the greatest British directors of all time. He made a film called The Full Monty, one of his first movie. And it was a huge worldwide yeah. It made tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. And, um, and we were incredibly lucky to get him. He was the, the hero of the show. Well, the idea, that, the idea that, I mean, it's brilliant, you all, and I, I don't mean to um, not take all of your questions and we'll take them in just about one minute, but Magpie Murders, um, works because real life and fiction merge from time to time and stay separate from time to time. But as you say, someone will walk down the stairs in, in fact and come out in fiction. And we know, the, re the, the viewer knows, by the cars and the clothing and what people are called. And there's just this sort of a different feel. Am I making this up? Yeah, no, no, you're, you're absolutely right. You've got to mention, though, that you see the, the book is about a writer called Alan Conway, a very nasty writer of murder mysteries. And one of the things he does is that he puts people he knows into his books. So to give you an example, he is a gay man and he is married to another man and in the, in the, uh, who is quite a lot younger than him. And in the... And he turns him into the sidekick of a detective. So the actor, a, a very, very good actor called Matthew Beard, plays both this sort of, this, this louche husband, yeah. and he plays the rather dim public schoolboy sidekick. And, and as you just said, he can go down the stairs as one character and come out the door in another. And all you know to tell you that it's, it's not the same is a change of clothes and also a slight change in the color palette. We did yes, that yeah, you can definitely, I was saying, there seemed to be a different feel. And, and oh. we do this with lots and lots and lots of the characters. And it, and, and it only happened because of my wonderful wife saying that that's what, what we should have. And, and it just, it's just a smile. It's, it's, and, and I don't think it's ever been done. So, and that's also something I want to say, which is that in my work, I'm constantly trying to th do things that nobody has ever done before. Because I think that is one of the fun aspects of being a writer, which is to, to push the boundaries and to see what you can do with plays, with television, with novels that, that are just different. I've got my, my next uh, Hawthorne novel is in my head, and I swear to you, it's going to, it may be a catastrophe, but it is certainly going to be different. 
I'm going to my mailbox to wait for it right now. I mean, one of the things, and then we'll and we'll wrap up because I, I have I know you all have some questions, but um, one of the things I loved in the in in the in Magpie Murders in the play in the TV show is that you talk about um, how fact and fiction really aren't that different, and how there are these invisible bridges between them. And I think that you show that so gorgeously in Magpie Murders, the invisible bridges between reality and imagination and fact and fiction, because it's all about stories. Well, that's what my life has been about. I mean, all my life, I've been interested in stories. I was saying to you that I loved the secret passages in the Tintin books. And to me, I've always thought that anything you see in life, which is real, has a fantasy and, and a story behind it that may be fantastical. I'll just give you one very quick example. I lived for 12 years in a place called Trouch End in North London. And every day on the way to the station, I passed an antique shop. And the it was an old antique shop on the corner. And for 12 years, it did not sell a single stick of furniture. The window display never changed in all that time. So the reality was a, a, an antique shop that I passed. But my imagination began to think, what is this shop really doing? Is this where criminals meet? Is it a sort of a front for something else? Is it a, is it a drug den? Is it, is it a, a place where witches and covens or whatever, or magicians, warlocks meet? You know, what is, the, what is the reality behind the reality? And I think that what I'm doing in my work now is bringing the two into collision with each other. And that's why I'm having such fun with it, because it's something that sort of I've been thinking about for years. You always make me cry. I mean, it is absolutely brilliant. Your imagination is wonderful. Your storytelling is wonderful. Your your brain, I would love to be inside that brain. I absolutely adore it. <laughs> Everyone, The Twist of a Knife by Anthony Horowitz and Magpie Murders on TV. Like, we have time for a couple of questions. How young were, were you, says Renee, hey, Renee, when you wanted knew you wanted to be a playwright or an author? Well, hi, Renee. Uh, the answer is 10 years old. I knew at school... Um, I was a lonely, unhappy child at the school I was sent to, which was a boarding school, a private school, which is to say my parents had to pay for it. I hated it there. I was very unpopular. But then I began telling stories in the dormitory. You know, we used to let eight kids to a room. And after lights out in the dark, I started to tell the kids stories that I made up in my head. And the kids loved the stories. And as a result, I made friends. That was when I knew I was going to be a writer and there was nothing else. And you've made millions and millions of friends from your stories now. I don't think so. Catherine says, will there be more adventures for Susan Ryland? We love Susan. Well, I'm about to start the adaptation of um, Moonflower Murders, which is the second one in the series. And I do have in my head one more idea for a murder mystery with Susan Ryland in it. I'm not sure if it has Atticus in it or not, but it definitely has her. And once again, the main clue that identifies the killer is something that has never been done before. And that's what it excites about it. It's a, it's a new way of presenting a clue in a book that is that is just different and has has and, and I hope completely original. I'm not going to tell you what. That's a showstopper. That's a showstopper. That's why I want to do it. I can't wait. I, that's a showstopper because my brain is just going really really fast now. But I but I how would, how would I know if I could ever think of it? I don't know. Um, Lynn is asking, will you do the same structure with the TV version of Moonflower Murder? Well, that's a very good question, Lynn. And the answer is I don't really know yet. I haven't, I'm, only, I'm actually reading the book at the moment, rereading it to work out how to do the structure. And I'm slightly stuck here because the first one was, you know, you'll know this, Hank. When you, when you have a big success, the sequel is always harder. It's not easier, it's harder. Well, it's easier in some ways because people are expecting to enjoy it, but it's harder because you don't want to disappoint them. 
And so, yes, it will have the same structure, but it'll have to be different too. I can't play the same game twice. So, so we'll do things differently. And I have a few thoughts for it. And I think broadly speaking, it'll be 70% different. You can quantify this by a percentage. I'm saying that the larger part of it will be different because I don't want it just to be a repeat of not, you know, like Magpie Murders, but not quite so good. It's and got I, to do things differently in a different way. And the stories are very different too. Sure. So, um, so Jen and I are, are heading, we're going on, on, on vacation on Friday, and which both of us taking Moonflower Murders, and we'll spend most of the vacation um, just working on this thing because uh, she, like me, never stops. Uh, Jill sounds amazing. It sounds like that. What sounds like what you want to do is just say yes, Jill. That's a good idea. Yes, Jill, we will do that. Good idea. Um, no, it's not like Jill and I have been married for thirty-five years now, and we've worked together for about twenty-five of those years. And she is amazing. I mean, I've never met any. She's the only person I know who works harder than me, oh. uh, and um, and and is as dedicated as I am to the sort of world of. And you know, and she's produced. She produced Foil's War. She produced. You mentioned Collision, and you mentioned um, Injustice in your earlier remarks. She was a producer of those. She also, of course, produced Magpie Murders. Will produce Moonflower Murders. She is much cleverer than me and 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 you know i'm very very lucky to be married to her and just i see shannon has an, a, a question on the board i'll answer that one do you have to read the books in order it helps but no you can read them you can just buy, bounce into the twist of a knife and then go back to the other ones I think you, it's, you learn a little bit more about hawthorne that's all and i think you know it's like if, if you if you and i had lunch and you said well what did you do today and i said well i can't tell you because i have to tell you what i did three books ago first <laughs> I, wouldn't I wouldn't have to do that. So, yes, I agree. You can jump right into The Twist of a Knife, and I hope you will do that. It is a wonderful gift for yourself or for anyone who loves twisty, turny, entertaining, fun, clever, original, unique novels. I highly, highly recommend it, as well as Magpie Murders on PBS. You will absolutely love it, Blazers. You will love it. Let me ask you to stick around for two seconds, Anthony Wall. I say to you all, do not move, or if you do move, come back in about 12 minutes because, thank you, Darlene, um, says thank you for a brilliant interview. I'm looking at lovely comments. Thank you to everybody. Um, in about 12 minutes, I can't do the math, but something at four o'clock, we are having our regular crime time time with, look at this, Claire McIntosh, who another wonderful author who is going to be here with her new The Last Party. So do not miss this. Go get a cup of tea, go get a glass of wine, depending on where you are. Come back at four o'clock to chat with Claire McIntosh about The Last Party. And I'm going to, I almost held this up upside down. And do not forget to find <laughs> The Twist of a Knife by Anthony Horowitz. Anthony, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much. Thank you to a mighty blaze. It's been a pleasure. Yes, of course. Karen in the back room is reminding me we are giving away. Did I forget to say that? We are giving away a copy. We Well, Anthony and his publisher are giving away a copy. And let's spin the wheel of fun to see who wins this. And the winner is... No, we can't win. Renee, that's marvelous. Renee Herskowitz, thank you for your marvelous questions. Thank you for entering all of you. And we will be sending you, not this one, I'm keeping this, but you can get, we'll send you your own copy of The Twist of an Eye. Until four o'clock, you all, um, we will see you here. Let me show you who's going to come next week in case you have to go. Next week on our last crime time of the year, 4 p.m. on Tuesday, The Christmas Murder Game by Alexandra. Benedict. And you can see I haven't read this yet, so I'm off to read that as soon as my day is over. Till then, you all, remember, it is always safe inside a book.
and we will see you next time. Thank you for coming. Thank you for joining us. I'm Trisha Blanchett for A Mighty Blaze Podcast. My novels, Herrick's End and Herrick's Lie, books one and two of the Neath Trilogy, are available now if you want to check them out. Tune in next time for Season 8, Episode 2, featuring A Mighty Blaze's own Julie Gerstenblatt, talking about the release of her debut novel, Daughters of Nantucket. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning. Thank you.